Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. We have, uh, we've got a lot on today, so we're going to jump straight into it. We've got um, Dr. Michelle Kluver on the line. Good morning, Michelle, from Swinburne University. Hi, Shane. How are you? Good. It's great to talk to you. I should, I should also say I've got my whole team on the line as well. I've got Laura, Dr. Ray, Dr. Laura, Dr. Ray, Dr. Lyndon and Gracie from Texas are all on the line. We're going to do news in a few minutes, but we just wanted to start off with a discussion with you, Michelle, because today is a pretty important day in the world of astronomy. Tell us uh, what's happening. Yes, so in fact, today is Women Astronomers Day, so International Women Astronomers Day. And um, it actually marks the uh, birthday of the first woman professor of astronomy who was in the US, and her name was Mariah Mitchell. Hmm. And what did, what did she do? Um, is there anything sort of significant that we know of that we attribute to her? So she actually discovered a comet, and mm-hmm. um, it was as a result of that that she ended up becoming uh, the first professor of astronomy um, at Vassar College, actually, which is on the on the east coast. And um, yes, did actually uh, a whole lot of um, really fantastic stuff, as well as breaking the barriers in terms of you know women being allowed to uh, to do science. So she unfortunately uh, wasn't part of the um, the generation that got to get PhDs. Mm. That only happened. In the 1900s but she definitely paved the way for you know for all of us today that work in astronomy yeah i have to say these days we think oh discover the comet oh yeah okay but back then discovering comets was not too easy i mean this you know we have so many facilities these days and just to be frank thousands of amateur astronomers out there just you know looking through the skies but back then that must have been a tough call to discover a comet well exactly because you had to have access to things like you know telescopes and um you know good equipment and stay up all night and be charting the skies. So, you know, it, it wasn't like you would just go outside and, and see it and then go, right, I've discovered a comet. So it meant sort of surveying the night sky over, you know, many months and years. So it was a real dedication. And you had to stay up all night, of course, mm. which is, you know, the uh, the prerequisite for, for being a good astronomer. Yeah, no, that was one of the reasons I got out of it early on. As soon as I heard about that, it was like, <laughs> no, no, hard pass. Uh, need something I can do during the day. I'm pretty early riser but not that early. Um, now, Michelle, in terms, of, um, in terms of your work, just briefly, you, you look at galaxies and, and how they're shaped. Um, I, I always, I, I suppose people would wonder, do we, do we not know that? It seems like something that we might have already sorted out, but I know these things are so damn complicated. What sort of things go into affecting the shape of a galaxy? Yeah, so um, my research is all about whether the environment of a galaxy actually impacts its uh, its evolutionary path. And um, a little bit in the same way that when it comes to people, we often wonder about nature versus nurture. Mm. And the real challenge is that galaxies are changing over such very long periods of time, very much greater than the average lifetime of an astronomer. And um, so it's, it's a lot of detective work to try and see all the, the physics that's happening and kind of disentangle these multiple mechanisms that we think are going into um, a galaxy as it, as it goes through its so-called life. And uh, a little bit like people, they all tend to have their own personalities. So, um, so you have to do a, a mix of, of large statistical studies and then also some um, really zoomed in and, and focused studies on, on certain systems to, to try and piece together what's going on. So it's, it's, I'm going to say, a global effort of um, you know, hundreds of astronomers uh, across the globe. And of course, as our telescopes and technology get better and better, uh, we're constantly learning things. So the, the quest continues. Yeah. Look, one of the things I always found fascinating was when I looked at a picture of a galaxy and realized that the, you know, the, the, so the stars on one side of it are sometimes tens of thousands of years older than the stars on the other side even though you're looking at one single picture and you, that, that, that picture in itself is a, a view through time, a historical view through time of the galaxy, which is amazing. 
Exactly. So, um, so we're, we're, we're seeing all these snapshots of, of galaxies, you know, uh, across cosmic time. And then we're, we're trying to piece together if we can link them and, you know, um, sort of plot a, a, a pathway. But the question is always, are we looking at distant apples and nearby oranges? Mm-hmm. You know, to what extent can we actually use that, that information? And of course, that's where the theoretical simulations and, and great computational work that some of my colleagues at Swinburne do comes into it because they can just play, you know, universe and uh, roll things forwards and backwards and, and test the, the physics ideas that the, the observers are, are coming up with, which yeah. is a crucial part of it. Fantastic stuff, Michelle. We're going to have to go, but um, happy, uh, happy, you know, what, what do we call it? Uh, women Astronomers Day. I know there's a lot That's of a right. great women there at Swinburne doing astronomy and, and you're one of them. Um, is, there, is there anywhere where people should go and look for, for sort of inspiration in this space, especially if, you know, young women looking to be astronomers? Oh, absolutely. So please do go to our, our Swinburne Center of Astrophysics and Supercomputing website. We've got lots of fantastic links there and also some links to uh, to social media. And uh, please do do follow us and, and help us in our quest to make every day International Women's Astronomer Day. Sounds great. Dr. Michelle Kluber, thanks so much for chatting to us today and good luck with your work. We'll get you back at some stage to talk to you in detail about what you're doing. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks, Michelle. Right, folks, now we're going to jump into some news with the team. Uh, Dr. Ray, we might start with you. Good morning. Hey, Dr. Shane. Uh, I uh, had an exciting weekend. I got my second uh, COVID vaccine shot on Friday. Oh, congratulations. um, Really excited. Uh, Not too many. You know, I had some side effects. They were exactly what was on the form. Little bit of a fever and chills and a few aches, but they're mostly gone by now. And it's Sunday, and I had it on Friday. So, yeah. well, the, um, you know, the best thing for you is you know you've seen the University of Rome's research coming out by Andrea Sensome that talks about you know twenty eight percent of men who get positive uh, COVID uh, end up with erectile dysfunction. So you know you've dodged a bullet there. Well done, buddy. <laughs> This is a number I'm putting Thanks out for there. Is, that, that, that piece of research. I really want people oh, to be yeah. aware of this. It is, it is the number one reason why, you know, other than death um, and chronic illness, that we might be able to encourage people, especially men, to, um, to get uh, vaccinated. Anyway, sorry, Ray, I, I jumped in. Uh, yeah, I... I, I just trying to remember what my story was now. Um, right. So uh, 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 I, this was a really, uh, just a really cool study on something called metallic water and so you can transform whiny water into a shiny reflective gold metallic like material now that sounds kind of weird i just want to remind the the listeners we define a metal is an, a bunch of atoms squeezed together so much that their outer electrons are are able to be shared across different atoms and you kind of get this sea of electrons and that's how we conduct electricity as it turns out um It's believed that if you apply enough pressure to any material that isn't a metal, that isn't conducting electricity, um, you can actually squeeze it enough together really, really hard that it will eventually become a conductor and it will be able to share its electrons. Now, this is posited to work for water in the cores of gas giants. That's where they think that might happen. But given that you need something between 15 and 50 atmospheres of pressure on water, it's kind of thinking we're never going to do this on planet Earth. But researchers at the Czech Academy of Science in Prague uh, actually managed to do this. And they did it in a quite clever way. They went, well, we're not going to be able to squeeze water that hard. But what if we get water to borrow a bunch of electrons from somewhere? We could get it to become metallic and conducting. And so they did this by mixing, uh, taking a mixture of sodium and potassium metal. Because if you mix them at equal ratios, they turn into a liquid. Now, we do know that water will borrow electrons from sodium and potassium. It works really well. Unfortunately, soon after it borrows those electrons, it reacts and explodes. So because if we put sodium or potassium with water, it it reacts, and then we get actually quite a big explosion that's rather violent. So we need to not have the explosion but still have the electron borrowing. So what they did was they made a liquid droplet of of these two metals in a vacuum and doped in just a wee bit of water and made a coating of water on the drop. And they were able to, we're talking maybe about a 50th the thickness of your hair. They made a coating of water that was actually able to, it would, it's amazing. You can watch the videos of it. It turns gold, it goes shiny. And then they did all the rigorous spectroscopic stuff you would think to prove that it's actually a conducting material. 
Um, and so it was just really interesting, really exciting. And the, the scientists were very upfront about it. They went, you know, we don't really know if it has an application, but it's something we couldn't do on Earth. Um, and what, one other interesting thing about how science is changing is um, the researcher, the one of them, Philip Mason, runs a YouTube channel, which is actually acknowledged in the paper. And the journal wasn't all for that, but it's actually one of the foreign funding sources for the project. Because while this is a very pioneering study in fundamental chemistry, it would have never gotten funded by a grant buddy, body, and it actually was funded off the support through their YouTube channel. Hmm. So interesting food for thought. Yeah, different way to fund things. Thank you, uh, Dr. Ray, Dr. Laura. What have you got for us? Um, I was just thinking about grant buddies. I would love one of those. Do they exist? But also, I love how animated you were during that, Ray. I was thinking, how many coffees have you had? Which kind of links me into my story. And I thought, <laughs> I've already had like three coffees, but um, like, you know, it's 11. It's still early for me. But I also found a really cool story which I identify with, you know, I, I was like, that's super cool that um, bumblebees have a better memory if they've had a caffeine hit. Hmm. Now, we know that a lot of plants have caffeine. What I did have caffeine in their like leaves or nectar or seeds. I didn't know the difference. 60 different species of plants have caffeine. And it's already known that bumblebees are preferentially attracted to caffeinated nectar. So I didn't know that either, but that's apparently already been shown the bees do prefer caffeinated nectar. And so the question that researchers have had is, is it that the bees like the caffeine or is it that it's caffeinated nectar that keeps the bees coming back to those plants? And so in this study that was published this week, um, researchers from the UK, they took um, bees and they separated them into different groups. And they had bees that were exposed to strawberry odour or strawberry odour with caffeinated nectar or nectar, but without the caffeine. And so they primed the bees with this odour and nectar with and without caffeine, and then they set the bees loose. And they set the bees loose with artificial robotic flowers that had a strawberry odour or a different odour, but none of the nectar was caffeinated. So then they could analyse, okay, so what are the bees going for? Is it, is it the odour that's bringing them back and they can remember it? The caffeine's out at this point where they've been set free. And there was a huge association, 77%, of bees that had caffeinated nectar together with the strawberry odour, preferentially targeted the strawberry plants, hmm. where it was 44% of the other ones. So it's actually the memory of the bees that the caffeine's affecting. And so that's super cool. So the implications for agriculture are actually like, you know, actually level 10, because you could actually train your bees to go to a certain crop by giving them a certain um, odour. So, you know, caffeinated nectar, you'll get increased pollina pollination. And I thought that was really cool. So the, you, you, the key there, I suppose, is, is making sure that they remember the odor that you're training them with, which is where the caffeine well, comes yes. in. Yeah. Is it right? doesn't last long. So it only lasts for 24 hours. So you get Ooh. this, like, this burst of, you know, remembrance. And also, can I point out, which I thought was really, really cute, when they've had the caffeine, when they go back and the worker bees tell the other bees, hey, you've got to go to this plant. Yep. You know, bees do this little waggle dance mm. to tell the other bees what's up. The waggle dance after caffeine is super, you know, it's on. <laughs> I watched it. So the caffeinated waggle dance is like, caffeinated. you know, it's, yep. it's extra. Yep. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you, Laura. That. Interesting stuff. Bees continue to amaze us, I say, um, as, as do other insects. We don't give them enough credit. Dr. Linden, what have you got for us? You got your fancy new microphones that working? Yes, Dr. Shane. I have got not a hep a bee in my house, thank goodness. The idea of a caffeinated bee terrifies me. I have got an old sponge, like a, but a really, really old sponge, actually the oldest sponge that's ever been identified on the earth. Yeah. So this was a study that was splashed across the homepage of Nature for the past few days. It's a single author study, which you don't see. I don't see that many of those Very these rare. days, but it's, it's uh, by a Canadian researcher, Professor Elizabeth Turner. And she's been studying this remote province, the rocks in this remote province of northwest Canada for over 25 years. And she was looking at these rocks. That's an ancient reef. And she was looking at one of these rocks and she found this pattern, this kind of branching, kind of like a netting sort of pattern in one of the rocks. And what she realised was that this pattern, this structure, is very similar to the structure that we see inside modern-day sea sponges, as well as in fossils of other kinds of sea sponges. 
Now, what's exciting about this is that the age of most of our sea sponges or where we start to see sea sponge fossils and other kind of animal fossils in the record is about 541 million years ago. It's called the Cambrian explosion where we get this explosion of animal life on Earth. But Professor Turner's rocks were 890 million years old. So if this is actually a fossil, this is actually a fossilised sea sponge, then it extends our understanding of animals living on the earth by about 350 million years, which is crazy. It's, mm. a, it's a really dramatic finding. And why we care, I suppose, is because, you know, not only does this mean that the story of how animals have evolved and lived on earth is a, is a lot longer than we thought, but it means that these kinds of species have lived through some really rough times. 890 million years ago, the Earth was a pretty harsh place to live. Like there wasn't a lot of oxygen there and there wasn't a, it, was a, it was a really hard place for any kind of organism to survive, whereas these kinds of sponges, if this is a fossil, has lived through some really harsh times, some really cold periods in Earth's climate and some really uh, dramatic conditions as well. I keep saying if this is a fossil, because this is the terminology that's used in the paper, even the author says, if this is right, if I'm correct, then this is a really big deal. But mm. this debate has been going on in the geological world for, for a long time about how old animals, uh, the history of animals is on the planet. And some other geologists think, oh, look, it could just be bacteria that have made that pattern or maybe it's just how the rocks have formed, they've crystallised in, in that way. But the fact that this is in nature, there are a lot of names at the end of the article who have peer-reviewed it. I mean, we could be hearing a lot more about this really old sponge in the next few years, I'd say. Hmm. Interesting stuff, yeah. I mean, it's, it's always hard too when you've got one. You know, <laughs> one sample. It's like, oh, you know, it could be the one sample. You know, there, there exactly. are... And yeah. yeah, it could be that there's, um, you know, these, they just don't stick around as fossils for very long. They don't, they're not preserved in that way. It doesn't mean they didn't exist. They're just yeah. really hard to find. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Lyndon. And uh, finally, Gracie, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Gracie, what's uh, hitting the news over there in Texas or the world? Yes, yeah, so there's, there's actually a research group just a few hours from me at the University of Texas that have discovered an unidentified group of microbes. And these microbes actually break down dead matter without releasing methane, which is very unique. Mm. Um, and methane is a greenhouse gas. Um, and so this can have really major implications um, for climate change and in helping control climate change. Um, and their paper was actually published a few months ago in Nature Communications. Um, and these are actually known as extremophiles, these types of microbes, meaning that they live in really extreme environments like hot springs. Um, and they've also been found in China as well as the U.S. Um, and they actually named this group of microbes Brock Archaeota, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, and it's actually named after one of the pioneers of this type of research, Dr. Thomas Brock. Um, and the research that he did with microbes were pretty essential in the development of PCR testing or polymerase chain reaction testing, um, which is basically a test that's used to identify genetic material from an organism like a virus. And so this has actually uh, aided COVID testing quite hmm. a bit. Very cool. Yeah, it, it amazes me when we hear about some of these particular microbes and so forth and where they live. And of course, it gives us, well, I don't know, not everyone, but it gives me hope that when we look at some of the other, you know, planetary bodies and moons and so forth in our solar system, that in some of these extreme environments, we might actually find find life because, boy, we find it in some, some weird-ass places here on Earth where you wouldn't <laughs> expect it to, to thrive. Well, thank you, team, for news. Uh, we're going to go to a break in a moment. Gracie, I know I'm going to see you a bit later in the show again um, to talk about some, some uh, you know, what happens when giant rods go through people's skulls and stuff like that. Um, Dr. Laura, Dr. Lyndon, Dr. Ray, thanks so much. Chat to you again real soon. Pleasure, Shane. See you soon. Bye, Bye Thanks, Shane. Thanks, thanks guys. All right, folks, a uh, bit of music for you, and we'll be back with our first, uh, sorry, our second guest for today. That'll be Dr. Catherine Weller, and we're going to talk about what it's like to be an organ recipient during a time of COVID and what that means for vaccinations and the like. So hang around. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple R. On the line with me now is Dr. Catherine Weller. Catherine is, uh, well, I believe she's now working for the National Youth Science Forum. Good morning, Catherine. Welcome to the show. 
Good morning. Great to be here, Shane. It's fantastic to talk to you because we bumped into each other on Twitter, I think, as as it goes. I think about half my guests these days come from me bumping into people on Twitter, which is fun. Um, but we were talking about vaccinations and this issue of certain people being immune compromised and what that means. And and you have a very personal story there in your case. So, so tell us what happened to you and how you ended up being a recipient of an organ and so forth. Yeah, so back when I was 18, so in my first year of uni, um, I had a kidney transplant, Mm. quite suddenly, actually, um, and that came from my lovely father. Um, And so for the last 11 years, I've been on immunosuppressant drugs. Um, So these are are drugs that lower your immune system. That means that my body doesn't attack my kidney. Mm. Um, But what this does mean, though, is that I'm quite, um, uh, I get worried when there's, um, infections going around because I'm quite susceptible to them. So I get the flu shot every year. Yep. And so when the pandemic hit, um, I was quite worried. And I was also based in the UK at the time. Oh, fun. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the UK is wonderful. And I was working over there at the Natural History Museum and everything was going wonderfully. And then the pandemic hit. And, of course, a global city like London, um, when it shuts down, it's, it's madness. Mm. Um, yeah, so tell us a, a bit about the, um, I mean, you don't have to give us all the details about why you had to get the, the kidney transplant, but what was that experience like? Because this is a very major surgery that, as I understand it, is, is potentially life-threatening to your father as, as well as yourself. I mean, that, the recovery time and effort must have been quite extraordinary. It's actually a lot more simple than I think people imagine it to be. Oh. So I was only in hospital at the, um, afterwards for, I think, about a week or two. Um, and my father even less. Right. So, yeah, so we, we were back up and running um, quite quickly after the surgery. Um, and he's done wonderfully over the past 10 years uh, with only one kidney as well. So um, we, we came out of that surgery quite well. Yeah, I just I think it's it's amazing. You know, you've you've managed that. Obviously, you know there are certain matching criteria that you must have gone through, presumably, to work out that your father could be a donor. Yeah, yeah, it's got much better. I think um, recently, um, in the last couple of years, so you don't necessarily have to be the same blood type and things like that. But they do, of course, want you to be the best match possible. So um, I think a few family members might have got tested for me. Um, my dad's dad's was a perfect match. So. Yeah. Oh, but I mean, I, I wonder, you know, with those situations where the tests are coming through and people go, oh, oh, I'm a perfect match. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you kind of, it's such a big deal. I mean, it's, this is life threatening to you, right? I mean, essentially, well, I guess you could handle dialysis for a very long time, but that takes days out of your week and it's such an extraordinarily you know, impactful process. Yeah, so I was uh, on dialysis, peritoneal dialysis, for four months. So that's the dialysis where you um, you have um, it goes through your peritoneum, so mm. that's your, your stomach rather mm. than sort of hemodialysis that most people are aware of. So this was overnight, but um, that was for four months, and then I, I had my transplant and was back to feeling one hundred percent almost immediately afterwards. Mm. And with the immunosuppression drugs, I mean, do you find a difference in any way in your lifestyle other than, you know, obviously that very significant awareness of of what, you know, I I suppose your your heightened risk? Yeah, so I mean, it's very important to take these immunosuppressants every morning for the rest of your life. Mm. And that is a very small price to pay for for the gift of of, of having a a transplanted kidney. Um, So it's it's something that um, that I've, I've it's completely normal to me now, but I mean, I have been able to um, to travel normally. Um, I've been able to to do quite extraordinary things actually um, with my transplanted kidney and with this medication. So, mm. you you talk to your doctors and they sort of give you a second look and they're like, "You want to go where? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we can work with it." <laughs> yeah, um, and in terms of the so in terms of the vaccination process and so forth around um, COVID, with you know here in Australia we have the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccines, both very solid vaccines that you know if they if they're actually used, uh, both of them, you know we potentially can save a lot of lives. I mean, how does this play out for you with your immunosuppressant drugs and your modified immune system and, and so forth? What does that look like for you? Yeah, so I was in the UK when um, when all the vaccination stuff was going down, and um, so they were quite early in their um, mm. vaccination drive. So I had two doses of the Pfizer vaccine three weeks apart um, in January. Yep. Um, so we were prioritised, which was an incredible thing for the um, the government to do. So they they went on the most vol- old uh, elderly people, aged care residents, um, healthcare staff, and vulnerable immunosuppressed people. Yep. 
Um, and I think Australia's got a, a similar kind of priority system. Um, so it was very, very lucky to have that. Um, but because immunosuppressed people aren't in lots of medical trials, so we weren't part of a lot of the vaccine trials. So no one really knew how well the vaccines work in, in my population. Mm. And so now so they know, for instance, the flu vaccine. We need to get it every year, but it's not as effective in us as it is in a healthy person. So the same kind of thought was for the, for the COVID one. Um, so I was in a study when I was in the UK yep. um, and they, they checked uh, my antibodies. So about a month after my second vaccine, they checked my antibody response and my T-cell response. So these are, are ways of looking at how effective um, the vaccine is. Um, and unfortunately for me, the, um, the antibody results came back very low. So mm. I hadn't, my body hadn't produced any antibodies to this. And it's because of the immunosuppressant medication that I'm on. Um, specific types as well. So this doesn't, this isn't for lots of populations. This is the specific medication that I'm on as a transplant recipient. Um, hmm. So, I mean, when it comes to the vaccines now, um, and I hear sort of arguments of, oh, vaccinate the vulnerable and then let hmm. COVID rip through the population, yeah. I kind of think, oh, there's a lot of vulnerable people out there where the vaccine isn't as effective and we're not sure if it's worked completely well. So we need that herd immunity. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting um, how quickly many many pundits in this space are willing to throw an entire community of people who've already had significant men, uh, you know, mental health issues associated in many cases with with what they've been through medically in life. I think as a part of it, but also they've also gone through these incredible medical odysseys in many cases. Some of them for years. You know, you talked about you know four months on the recipient um, transplant list. I suppose you know, and you're lucky enough to get one from your father. But some people are on them for years and you know are in these medical and others in just medical odysseys that they could go on for you know in some cases decades and you know and not able to be protected and and we are we are literally either either imprisoning these people in their their homes or throwing literally throwing them under the bus and and talking about you know at, at best chronic illnesses at worst death and you know it's it's not okay i mean with regards to, you know, the, the various types of vaccines, is there any um, sort of thinking around, you know, obviously AstraZeneca is a, a very different type of vaccine to the Pfizer vaccine, the new mRNA vaccine. Is there any thought? I mean, I know a lot of people. In fact, we had a, we had a young two, two guests last week, you know, young May, who's only eight, and her mother Louise were on, and, and they, they can't have any um, live attenuated vaccines at all um, with their particular um, immune problems. Um, they, they may be able to have the mRNA vaccines, but they don't know, like yourself, whether they'll be effective. So are there any thoughts around that? with regards to the different vaccine options or is it expected they'll all be kind of no good? Yeah, so we're recommended to not get these live attenuated vaccines. Um, but the good thing is that, is that none of the COVID vaccines available are live vaccines. Mm. So they are safe um, for immunosuppressed populations. Right. So, yeah, the advice that we had was get whichever vaccine is offered to you. And, I mean, in the UK we did have a different risk environment at that time, so it really yeah. was get the earliest vaccine you can and get it now. And I would say that it's a similar kind of thing for Australia is, is get the one that you're offered. Um, there are early studies out there showing that the antibody response is a little bit better with the mRNA vaccines. Um, but it, then again, that's the one that I had and it, and it hasn't quite um, worked as well as we thought it, it might. Uh, but it does give some protection. The studies do say that um, even though it's, it's a lesser protection, there is still something there. So it's definitely worth still getting your two doses of, of your vaccine. Yeah. I remember when a particular very famous doctor from uh, the US who, you know, for a while there was dealing with the Trump administration um, was talking about this and he said one of the reasons why we know we'll get a vaccine way back when was because our human bodies were creating antibodies to the COVID virus uh, or the, you know, the infection that we get and that tells us that it's possible. Um, you know, by comparison with something like HIV, you know, we, we don't do that and hence it's been, you know, it's been decades and we, we haven't ma managed to crack that. Um, is, is it likely that people in your situation that get COVID will, will generate the antibodies needed to fight it off? Or is that equally like just not going to happen in the same way that your body's not generating the, the right response to a vaccine? It looks as though um, people who are immunosuppressed who do get COVID do produce antibodies. So they have shown that that, that is the case. 
And then they also still recommend that you get the vaccine after mm. having had a COVID infection because then your antibodies are boosted even more. Yep. So if I'd had COVID beforehand, then I'll be even more protected now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Look, I think it's fair to say, though, I mean, what, what you and everyone with similar conditions need is for the rest of us to get our bloody vaccines so that the chance, uh, the chance of um, us, you know, passing on i know there's a lot of numbers coming out with regards to ability of vaccinated people to pass these things on but at the end of the day you know a whole population of unvaccinated individuals is a breeding ground for new variants and makes it very difficult for people like yourself to um to sort of you know get through this in a healthy way yeah exactly yeah we're we're waiting for the um 80 vaccine threshold will be lovely <laughs> then we can go outside yeah yeah i think that's one of the things people forget that everyone's in this situation that's immune compromised is you know we we, we moan and complain about lockdowns um but you guys are all locked down all the time i mean uh, how, how do you respond to that when you when you see things like these protests in sydney and melbourne uh, i mean this is your life right yeah, it is quite frustrating because, I mean, from I mean, I know that I've been quite privileged in a way in that I've been able to work from home, I'm still getting paid. Yep. And so it really is only my health condition that means that I'm extremely vulnerable to this. So I definitely know why people get frustrated and why when there isn't economic support to stay at home, why people do go to these protests and why people do break the rules. Mm. But as someone who can die from this and who has a much greater risk of being severely impacted um it does make me really sad when i see people going out to these and then possibly bringing it home to their loved ones yeah yeah it's 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 very disturbing especially when you see situations where people do bring it home and family members die as a result of that especially more more vulnerable family members which is you know the the case there's always one in in every family i think there's always someone more more vulnerable now um catherine before we we sort of go i I want to talk to you a little bit about your the research work you did and and the work you've been doing because you i I assume most of this was during your phd and I, i suppose madagascar was one of the places that your doctors probably say you want to go where you know with your immune problems but you were working on on literally finding evidence for for the breakup of of our sort of original large supercontinents yeah continents yeah so i was i was basically doing a jigsaw puzzle with geology really so i was looking for the edge of the puzzle pieces um so when the supercontinent gondwana formed i was looking for where east and west gondwana hit so hmm. collided yep um, and so when you have these continents colliding, it, it generates a huge amount of pressure and temperature in the in the crust. And so, of course, any rocks that are sort of forming at this point, they reflect the pressures and temperatures at which they were formed. So, yeah, I was sent to Madagascar of all of wonderful places um, to try and find evidence of this edge of the jigsaw piece. And so I went looking for these amazing blue rocks because I knew that these rocks had a certain mineral in them that is characteristic of forming at really high temperatures and at sort of plate collision zones. So I went to Madagascar, found a bunch of these rocks, and then sliced them into really, really thin slices to put under a microscope, and then looked at how the minerals interacted with each other. So this is a, it's a field called equilibrium thermodynamics, so trying to look at different ways that minerals behave under different pressures and temperatures. And so by looking at these minerals and how they assemble, I was able to work out exactly where this suture zone, this collision zone was. Yeah. So it's one tiny piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. Now, I have to say, you, you kind of skipped over a little bit there when you said, you know, just went there and found some of these rocks. I mean, are these things lying around? I mean, when you talk about the crust, were you were you digging like kilometre deep ditches to find them? I mean, where, where do you find these blue rocks? Yeah, so we went, we, we traveled um, with a Toyota Hilux and a Geo Hammer and a pick, mm-hmm. and then um, using some old maps by some um, Frenchmen, and then went to these areas where we thought that um, previously there'd been evidence of these kind of rocks. But they're not just lying on the ground. So these are all, all rocks that have, um, they're, they're firmly attached to the ground. So they're all in the orientations at which they, um, they formed. So they're all quite deformed because this is an area where there's a lot of, mm. lot of pressure. So they're all sort of sticking up in weird directions. Um, and there we went, went at them with a geo hammer, um, making sure that, of course, we were away from any sort of land ownership issues. Yep. 
Um, and then just took small, very small samples of, of rocks and sent them to Germany. Yep. And then you ended up working in the National History Museum in London. What were you doing there? I mean, that's a, I haven't been, but I hear it's a spectacular place to go. It's an absolutely spectacular place. Um, and I really do wish that I had been there with my geology. Um, but I did sort of change direction in a way, and I went into research communications. Mm. So I worked with a Bill and Melinda Gates project that was based there that looked at the um, possibility of eliminating intestinal worms, which is a neglected tropical disease. So not my area of science at all, but it used a lot of my experience of communicating my PhD research. So I knew how to sort of break down complex clinical research papers into information that, say, the policymakers at the WHO um, or at, at the foreign aid agencies in the UK mm. government would be able to understand to sort of use that to to make changes. And and yep. so that was it was quite important work that we were doing. And so um, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I didn't get to go to the, the field sites, unfortunately. That was uh, Benin, India and Malawi. Yeah, um, a bit sad. And now you're back in Melbourne and you're working with the National Youth Science Forum. Yeah, this is an organisation that I absolutely love. So I tried um, to communicate science to... Um, I, I really want to increase science accessibility um, in the public. Um, and so I thought, well, high school students, that's where we should get them. And the National Youth Science Forum um, looks at um, doing residential and digital experiences for Year 11s to sort of introduce them to careers in STEM um, and how diverse that that can be. And so I'm absolutely loving it. And... The applications are still open. So if you have a year 11 student in your life, um, encourage them to look up the National Youth Science Forum, the NYSF, and, um, and, and apply. It's all through Rotary Clubs throughout Australia as well. So there's a lot of support to attend the programs. Oh, fantastic. Um, Catherine, it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And I have to say, you know, um, careers in science, and I always add careers with science, because these days a lot of people, like yourself, you end up not working as a scientist for your whole life, but you end up in these amazing careers using your science skills for a long time. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for, for telling us your personal story there around um, the whole thing with the immunosuppression and the organ transplant and so forth, and just reminding everyone just how important it is for everyone to get vaccinated because not everyone is in a situation where they can protect themselves and they rely on the rest of our community to do that protection for them. I mean, that is the point of being in a community, as I recall. So, uh, Catherine Weller, thanks so much for chatting to us. Good luck with the work here in Melbourne. Good to have you back here. And um, no doubt we'll chat again about the science stuff in schools down the track. Thank you, Shane. Good to talk to you. Folks, we're going to take a break and we'll be back in a moment. Uh, hopefully, Gracie will be back on the line from Texas. She's going to talk a lot about some interesting early uh, neuroscience stuff that happened, which is really fascinating. A bit gruesome, but uh, fascinating stuff. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. This is Dr. Shane. Uh, just a quick note before we get back on the line with Gracie. Uh, Dr. Catherine Weller, who I just spoke to, reminded me of something I promised that I would promote for her. But, of course, you know, I get so excited with some of these guests, I forget things. If you go to donatelife.gov.au, you can register for um, organ donation if you are over 16 years of age. And this is something that we don't see enough of. So if you are so inclined, um, and I believe, actually, I have to do this too because I did it the old-fashioned way back when you, I think you ticked a box or a card or something in your license. I think you have to redo that. So it might be worth just checking that you are properly registered for that. So it's donatelife.gov.au if you're over 16 years of age. And uh, you just heard, you know, someone who was a recipient of an organ. So very important. Now on the line with us now is Gracie Finko from Texas. Gracie, you're going to tell us all about some of the early neuroscience stuff. Uh, gruesome stories. Gruesome. Yes. So today we're going to talk about a really famous medical case in both kind of psychology and neuroscience. And it's the story of a man named Phineas Gage. And did you say you wrote a talk on him before? Yeah. Years ago, uh, Gracie, when I was writing uh, presentations for the then Dean of Medicine, Professor James Angus, we had to give a talk or he had to give a talk to um, one of the neuroscience uh, groups. And I thought, well, let's uh, do some do some history for some of them that may not have heard of this story. It's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. It's graphic. It's great. 
Yes, definitely. So I'm going to start by just kind of giving an overview of the medical case, and then we'll talk about some modern studies um, that have kind of dealt with recreating what happened with this medical case. Um, and then we'll talk about kind of what this all means for us today. So basically, he was born in the 1820s, um, and he was a construction worker for a railroad in Vermont in the U.S. So he actually dealt with explosives. Um, so his job title was a blasting foreman, which basically means he would dig a hole into a rock and put gunpowder in it. Um, for the explosives. Um, and one day he was doing this at the age of 25 and a rod, you could picture this rod was about three centimeters in diameter, one meter long and weighing over six kilograms. And for my American friends, that's 13 pounds. So it was a pretty hefty rod. <laughs> hefty rod. Um, Yes, uh, pierced the entire left side of his face. Um, and so this rod actually had one pointed end and one kind of blunt end. So if you picture the start of the pointed end kind of starting near the bottom uh, of kind of his jaw area and then kind of went up behind his eye through his brain. And we'll talk about what specific part of the brain in a minute. And then out the top of the front portion of his skull. So this is basically a giant, giant nail. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's a great way to describe it. And, yes. and did it go through because of the explo cause of his explosives? Is that, is that what happened? Like he, he caused something to explode yes. and then it yes, went it through? Was, correct, yes. So something was distracting him and he turned and looked away and uh, the explosion went off. Um, so And apparently he convulsed, um, but was actually speaking coherently within a few minutes and walked without much assistance, basically like got up and walked away from the accident. Um, and he kind of sat in a cart as he rode back into town, which some of his employees, um, you know, were kind of around him to help assist him get him back into town. Um, and when the doctor came, he reportedly said, quote, doctor, here's business enough for you. Wow. So did he still a, have the sense of humor? Did he still have the rod in at this point? Yes. Yes, he did. And apparently still had a great sense of humor uh, with that statement. Um, and later that same day, the doctor basically noted that his mind was clear. Um, and he actually stated he didn't really want to see his friends because he would be back to work in a few days. So he didn't really sound like he saw like a, a huge deal with what had just happened. Um, and he yeah. actually got really lucky because this particular doctor was one of the few that had really extensive experience with cerebral abscesses, which is what happened uh, to him with, you know, having a, a rod sticking out of your skull. Um, and this particular doctor actually had less than five years of Time since he graduated medical school. Um, and uh, over the next month, his health kind of went up and down. So ranging from being really delirious um, and friends and family basically having his coffin kind of ready um, all the way to the other end of the spectrum of being really rational and up and walking around and talking coherently to people. And people have actually found advertisements for his public appearances kind of around New Hampshire and Vermont, some of those surrounding states. Um, and it, it's unclear if he actually organized these himself, but it, they were just kind of to showcase his um, like amazing medical phenomenon of having survived this accident um and really having kind of thrived after this accident and mm. we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later um he actually returned to work as a coachman which basically is the person that's in charge of kind of a horse-drawn carriage so if you picture kind of a horse-drawn carriage scenario the person that's sitting kind of up uh in charge of the horses with the reins um and he actually did this for a little over 10 years after his accident. Um, and then he actually ended up dying from an epileptic seizure in 1860. So uh, actually um, about 10 years after his accident as well. Um, and his skull and the rod is in the Warren Museum in Connecticut. Still is, it still, is it still in the skull? I don't think so. I think it's separate. They took it out eventually? So he actually, yes. Yeah, so, and actually what's interesting is he actually um, carried it around with him, kind of like a souvenir. <laughs> Uh, for the rest of his life, actually. <laughs> like a walking stick. So, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and he is kind of this iconic case um, on the association between the brain and personality, which shapes a lot of how we think uh, or what we think we know about the frontal lobe, which was the part of the brain that I was talking about earlier that the rod actually pierced was his frontal lobe. Um, and the frontal lobe is kind of that most anterior part of your brain. So kind of what would be just behind your forehead. Um, and it basically, uh, we think of it as kind of being in charge of personality, memory, emotions, um, problem solving, social action. Um, and this case really spans across both psychology and neuroscience um, for kind of being the first kind of interesting case that 
had sort of uh, an association between the brain and personality. And I actually remember being taught in school about how different his personality was after this accident and that he basically became a jerk after this accident and that he couldn't plan effectively. He had memory deficits, all these things. But I actually found out while researching this that his personality changes may or may not have been um, really exaggerated. Um, And uh, kind of the speculation comes with, we only have a few direct sources on what he was like um, before and after the accident. And most of the ones that we do have are not super clear about what period in his life that they were referring to. Um, and so the reports vary super widely and how impaired he actually was. Um, and I found people kind of all along the spectrum on this, some saying he definitely had dramatic mental changes and some saying he didn't at all. And so kind of for context, before his accident, his employers kind of described him as really efficient and capable, very shrewd, smart businessman, energetic, Um, And then some people said his memory and intelligence seemed impaired right after his accident. uh, But after a few days, he was fine. Mm. And some said he was completely different and was no longer himself. Um, And they said things like he was gross, profane, coarse, vulgar, um, couldn't plan effectively. Um, However, the main argument that he was the same was that he was a stagecoach for 12 years. So besides the fact that he was hired and kept his job for that long, um, he would have had to get up really early, take care of the horses, load luggage, plan his leaving and arrival time, um, charge them fees, uh, quickly change plans if he was delayed, you know, Mm, for whatever reason. Um, and so other people say he probably wouldn't have had to speak to people too much in this position. So if he were really profane or impulsive or acted like a jerk, no one really would have noticed. So also, people are kind of on. Yeah. And the guy's sitting up front. You know, he's out there in the cold, right? right? He's, had exactly. a, he's had a difficult conversation with his previous employer where they said, look, Phineas, you know, we're not going to let you near the explosives again. You know, you know what happened last time. Uh, right. Go over there and drive the coach. You know, he's he's probably a bit pissed off and he's cold. You know, so I think if he's a little bit grumpy, maybe it wasn't all due to a giant piece of metal being shoved through his frontal lobe. You never know. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It could have been due to multiple things. Yeah. Um, and it's almost, it's interesting because it's almost like whatever theories anyone had back then about personality or neuroscience could be supported by this case. Mm. Um, so basically everyone kind of saw what they wanted to see to confirm their own theory. Um, so the two main ones back then were something called phrenology, um, which is really outdated now. It was basically the thought that personality came from the shape of someone's skull. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I got a very round, very round skull, which is why my (laughs) personality is so well rounded. (laughs) <laughs> yes. And this theory that's is kind of the logic. <laughs> yes. So that's kind of the logic that somebody would have. Yep. have somebody that uh, believes in that theory or believed in that theory back then. Um, and then there, the other kind of predominant theory was rooted in what's called cerebral localization. And it's basically what it sounds like. So different parts of the brain. Um, so the idea that different parts have different functions. And people that do think his personality changed uh, use the doctor's statement that Gage uh, or that he continued to work in various places, but he couldn't really do much. And he changed jobs often and um, always finding something that like didn't really suit him. Um, So people kind of take that out of context because Mm. the doctor's statement right then actually referred to his very final months, Um, not necessarily during his whole life, but that statement has been misinterpreted as meaning that he never really had a regular job after his accident, which we know obviously doesn't align with other reports of him having this job for 12 years. Yeah. And if he died of a seizure in the end, he was probably, you know, it's reasonable to assume he might have been having seizures before that um, in those final, right. final months of his life, which could have caused him all sorts of problems. You can't be, you know, you can't be driving a coach with, you know, if you're having seizures. So. Right, exactly. Yeah. And there are just so few records from that time and from this case in general that, um, it's caused a lot of speculation. Mm. Um, and actually, there have been some modern studies that have tried to reconstruct the damage from the accident using um, basically digital scans of his skull that is still in the museum um, to better understand the injuries that he would have had and kind of that extent of his potential brain damage. Um, and so actually took a CT scan of his actual skull from that museum. Um, and then using doctor reports or whatever reports they found from that time, they kind of estimated where those entrance and exit wounds would have been um, and kind of the force that would have been coming out of that explosion. And uh, they determined that only the left frontal lobe was damaged rather than both lobes, right. um, which basically agreed with the doctor's report that, and this is pretty miraculous. The doctor's report back then was basically based on him touching his brain with his fingers. Um, right. So for him yeah. to be able to diagnose that um, five years out of medical school, 
touching a brain with with the fingers to try to determine, you know, what was actually damaged. That's pretty impressive. Um, and the title of that that study that looked at uh, his uh, his skull uh, is brilliant, by the way. It's called The Tale of Phineas Gage, Digitally Remastered. So if anybody wants to look that up, I think that's just a brilliant title right there. Um, and it's a really well-written article as well. Mm. And I think um, it's it's fascinating to me uh, that the guy even just survived the accident, forgetting the brain damage and the changes to personality potentially and all these other things that have been obviously studied, you know, at length. Um, he didn't die of an infection. He didn't die, you know, at the time. I mean, this, this, is, this in itself is quite amazing. Right. And he actually did have several infections that kind of sprouted up, but this doctor had the foresight to know exactly what to do because he had had experience apparently in, in that type of surgery before. And so he, uh, Phineas Gage was super lucky in getting the doctor that he did. Um, and that doctor happened to live in his hometown. Mm. Um, so it was just a really fortunate series of events, you could say. Very cool. Anything else um, there, Gracie? So, yep. Yes. So there was actually another study done in 2012 um, that used a CT scan of his skull and combined it with data from MRIs of males that were around the same age as him at the time of the accident. Um, And they actually found that damage to his white matter, um, which are basically like bundles of fibers involved in allowing the brain to communicate with itself. So it's basically kind of the connections between different parts of the brain would be a good description of white matter. Um, was just as significant as the frontal lobe damage that he mm. suffered. So there are some people that actually think it wasn't really frontal lobe damage per se. It was potentially more so white matter damage. Um, and this is in line with uh, with current research from other cases that we know of people that have white matter damage. Um, and so their theory is that um, his brain damage actually depended more on a coordinated activity of the brain rather than just a particular part of the brain. Amazing stuff. Well, Gracie, thanks yeah. so much. We've only got a couple of minutes to go, but I, I remember hearing this story and it was like, I just still have this image of the railway spike through the guy's skull and him sort of, you know, driving back to town um, with this thing hanging out when it was a meter long. And, you know, <laughs> I wonder whether the doctor said, what can I do for you today? Um, you know, like when you walk in, you know, like it's pretty, yeah, yes. it's pretty amazing, yes. you know, extremely unlucky event for this to occur to, um, to Phineas Cage and, and, but, but it's taught people so much. Hmm. Yes, definitely. And I think like most things in science um, in general, kind of each theory, you know, has its own limitations, like all the theories that we discussed about the brain today. So yeah. whether it's cerebral localization or it's more of a core coordinated effort with the white matter. Mm. Um, I think it's it's probably a lot more likely that it's some combination of the two. Um, yeah. But we will probably still have a, a lot of people on kind of both sides of the spectrum until we have a lot more evidence, really, you know. Yeah. Um, and I feel like this was just a really good example of science miscommunication in general, um, like a really popular folklore kind of case. Um, and it, it's taught really prominently in schools. It's all over YouTube, books, popular culture. Um, but it may actually be more myth than a fact. Um, but it, it did drive a lot of our interest in the brain and personality. Yeah, so. uh, it's a great story. Thanks so much for sharing it with us, Gracie. And uh, I guess uh, we're going to have to go, but uh, great talking to you again. We're going to talk to you again real soon, no doubt. Good good luck with things over there in, in Texas. I hope uh, things settle down a bit uh, soon. You know, um, Who knows? We'll probably be talking about these same problems in a year, but uh, let's hope a lot of people there get vaccinated and we, um, and we see an end. So thank you so much, Gracie. Good to chat to you. Yes, thank you, Dr. Shane. Folks, that was Gracie Finko, our correspondent from the U.S., and we're going to have to hand over now to the team from Eat It. I can see uh, Cam is over there. He's very excited. He's looking, uh, he's, he's looking good, actually. He's, uh, he's looking good. He's eager to eat. So uh, have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane, and we'll chat to you again next week. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.